of Advent, and today we are going to look again in Isaiah, just as we've been doing throughout this Advent uh, time. And today we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 through 10. So I invite you to hear these words. Isaiah says, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and shouting. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are of a fearful heart, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. And he will come with vengeance, with terrible recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be opened. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. For water shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of jackals shall become a swamp. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there, and it shall be called the holy way. The unclean shall not travel on it, but it shall be for God's people. No traveler, not even fools, shall go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, on this Sunday, we gather together and we remember, we remember that you have come. We remember that you are Emmanuel, God with us. But we also create this space, Lord, in order to be reminded that you will come again. And so we pray that that reality would change us, not just in the future, but even this very morning that we might know what it means that you are here, that you will always be here. And I pray that the words of my mouth, meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen and amen. Well, as you probably know, uh, when you look through scripture, the story of Israel is a story of a people who can't seem to ever be in their homes in a comfortable way. You know, of course, the story of the Exodus, which is, you know, them coming out of Egypt where they've been enslaved and they weren't able to go to their future home. And then when they're in their home, you have people like the Philistines who are always trying to attack them in their homes. We saw last week and still today the Assyrians who are constantly trying to come into their homes and destroy them. In fact, they did that very thing five different times. Uh, You see the Babylonians who came in, and then they took some of them away from their homes into exile. And even when Jesus was alive and they were in their homeland, 
It was still as if they weren't really home because, of course, they were oppressed and controlled by the Romans. And so again and again, they are struggling. They are searching to try to find a place to try to be able to finally be at peace. Sometimes the fault, of course, is their own. And sometimes it's simply a matter of the time and the place in which they lived. And yet, just like last week, in the middle of of all of that, in the middle of all of that struggle, that history that they have, in the the middle of Isaiah, in Isaiah 35, which is surrounded by danger, surrounded by judgment, nestled in somewhat oddly right here, Isaiah once again speaks a very different kind of word. Barbara Lumblad says, that Isaiah dares to speak a word out of place, a word that refuses to wait until things improved. In other words, what she's saying is that as, as Isaiah looks around, Isaiah is never shy to speak to the realities, as we said last week, the realities of struggle and strife, to the realities of Assyrians around them, to realities of their own sin and brokenness, but Isaiah is also never shy to say those never have the last word. That even in the midst of that, there is love, there is hope, there is peace, there is joy. See, this is what Christians do, it seems to me. We don't hide and act as if there aren't difficulties. But nor do we act like the difficulties are all that there are. What Advent helps us to see is that there is also in the midst of that joy and peace and love and hope. But Isaiah knows it's hard for us to believe that at times. And so yet, once again, he comes up with an image. If you were here last week, you'll know that the image uh, was one of animals getting along. And rather than eating each other, they would eat with one another. But today, he leads us to the desert. Something uh, that the Israelites and that the people from Judah would know very well. They know this kind of area. And he says, in the very midst of all of this, he says, all of a sudden... There are crocuses, flowers that are beginning to blossom, he says. Waters are bursting out of the wilderness. Burning sand is turning into pools. The haunts of jackals are turning into swamps. And then he goes on to say that there's going to be this highway that goes straight to Zion. And on that highway, he says, this is how we reach God. In fact, uh, one commentator says it's this clear sign that the resistance and the difficulty that we have of, of meeting God will be no more. And I love the way Isaiah says it. He says, even fools will not be able to lose their way. But Isaiah, Isaiah knows, again, that it is hard for us to believe it. And I just want us, I know it's redundant, but I want you to see again that the images that he gives are multi-sensory. He does not just say something. He gives you multi-sensory images. He says crocuses, right? Those flowers, you know, not all of them, but some of those smell. And so we can begin to smell that. If you're thirsty, as they oftentimes were, you can begin to taste the water. If you are afraid as they were oftentimes about the animals that might come to them and and attack them, you can hear the silence of the fact that on the highway there are no animals. You can touch the hot sands that then turn into a pool. 
all of these things, I want you to understand that what he is trying to do is get us into as multi-sensory of an experience as you can possibly have so that we can begin to imagine what it will really be like. He's trying to jolt us into seeing this. Now, in Isaiah 35, he doesn't just describe this great image. He also begins to speak directly to those who are fearful. He says to those who are of a fearful heart, and more literally in the Hebrew, that means those whose hearts are racing. He says to those of you, he says, be strong and do not fear. Now, as you know, fear is an incredibly powerful emotion. And one of the powers of fear is that it can both be incredibly healthy and it can be incredibly dangerous and unhealthy. Right? A good healthy fear says I'm not going to drive 100 miles an hour without a seatbelt on. Maybe don't even drive 100 miles an hour at all, but there could be fun in that, but not without a seatbelt. A good fear says I will not eat every single Christmas cookie that I see today. Right? Because it's probably not good for my stomach. It's probably not good for my health. Right? Now, honestly, my fearodometer on that is not very strong. Should be a little bit stronger. But fear, good healthy fear, keeps us from taking risk for which the consequences are far too grave. But there is also a threshold, a continuum in which as soon as you tip past that, you begin to see how fear, when it becomes chronic, how all of a sudden... There is no good health in it because it begins to restrict you. It restricts your ability to see things very well. All you can see is that thing of which you are afraid. It restricts you to being in relationships because you are too afraid that something difficult may happen. It keeps you from taking any risks at all because all of a sudden you become a friend to the sister which is safety and you become obsessed with safety and that's all that you can see. And so you don't allow yourself, if you have children, you don't allow them to go out to take any chances to do anything because you are so frightened. It can begin to restrict everything until you do not want to do anything. And this is why in scripture so many times we are told to not be afraid. But now here's the thing about fear. It's really hard to just stop being afraid. And it's really hard to talk someone out of being afraid. It's really hard actually to rationalize it, right? I, I've had these fears at times and I've just been like, oh, and, I've, and I could come up with all the reasons why the fear is irrational and yet still be afraid nonetheless, I was struck by something that Craig Barnes says about fear. He says this. He says that a lot of times fear can't be talked out of. It can't be rationalized. You need to have fear loved out of you. And the image then that comes to mind often in the midst of that, of course, is just the image of a child, right? I could think about our own children when they would come down, and they don't do it nearly as much anymore, but in the middle of the night when they're afraid, and when they're standing there by your bedside, you can try to tell them, look, there's no such thing as monsters. Look, it's just an old house. It's just the wind. Things are just, you know, creaking. It's fine. But they rarely can really fully understand that. And so what do you have to do? Before you really do much of that, you simply have to bring them in and bring them close. And you have to embrace them and wait for their hearts to slow down. 
And then once that has happened, then you can begin to say, okay, now remember, there are no such things as monsters. Remember, it is just the wind. And they are much more likely to begin to hear that story once they have known that they are loved, that they are embraced, that they are safe. And did you not hear that in Isaiah because what Isaiah says is not simply do not be afraid, be, not, be strong. He says this, be strong, do not fear, here is your God. Here is your God. Why be strong? Why do not be afraid? Why? Because God is right here. This is the incredibly powerful message of Emmanuel, God with us, that we as Christians must continually continually trumpet this beautiful reality that God is with us, that God is near. But you see, you have to cultivate that. Now, I'm going to be redundant here, and I'm doing it because of the fact that, you know what, Isaiah is redundant. He keeps bringing up images again and again. Good teachers will say, you should always be redundant. You should keep repeating the thing. So I'm going to repeat this once more. A part of being silent, a part of creating silence is this, that in those moments of silence, the more often that you do it when you're out and about in the world, the more that you begin to create space to remember that God is here. And I can tell you that over my journey over the last two or three years, when I have been fearful or when I have been anxious, not every time, let me be clear, but in those moments when I can be silent, it is with great regularity in the midst of that that I begin to feel an embrace when I begin to remember that Emmanuel, God is with us. Be not afraid. Here is your God. But you can't wait until those moments when you are afraid and then say, well, now I want to cultivate this. When our children are afraid and they're in a group of people, who do they look to go, who do they run to? Oftentimes, it's a mom or a dad, those with whom they are closest. It's not helpful just to run to somebody oftentimes. They want to run to those with whom they are in deep relationship. You feel that embrace. It feels different. And this is what happens when we begin to create more silence, when we begin to have even more of a relationship with God, then we feel God even more and that comfort. It's also, let me be redundant once again, it's also why we keep kind of hammering this fact that what we do in here needs to go with you when you leave this place so that you do not begin to think that Emmanuel means God in the sanctuary. So what do we say? Why do we have these windows so that you can look out so nothing that I'm saying in here does not is not in play when you go out there. What do we say about baptism? Whenever we have those waters, right, that God is with this child or with this adult who's being baptized, but we use real water, right? Remember this. I'm saying it again and again so that when you go out and about and you turn on the shower or you see a retention pond or you see a lake or a beautiful ocean or you're on a cruise or you're just simply cleaning up your child's face with a bit of water, every time you do that, you remember, you see God is with me we do it with the table where is the table it's all the way over there I hadn't thought I didn't realize it's so far away so that when you're at the table when you're breaking the bread as we do on Sunday morning and we say this is God God is with you when you go out and you are breaking bread or you're in your workspace and you're fearful or you're anxious you can remember that in the breaking of the bread you remember God is here 
It's not just be not afraid. Come on, be strong. Buck up, buttercup. That's not what Isaiah is saying. Isaiah is saying, be strong. Here is your God. And the more that we cultivate the awareness of God being present with us, the more likely we are to not be afraid. But to be sure, one of the things that happens when we are a fearful people is that we will be unable to also be a people of joy. Joy is not just what we celebrate today on this third Sunday of Advent. Joy is also clearly the main theme of Isaiah 35. Here's what it says. Maybe if you, hopefully you heard it, but if not, let me just repeat these joy parts of this prophecy. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and shouting. The tongue of the speechless sing for joy. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Repeatedly, Isaiah says, we can be a people of joy. This is what it looks like. It looks like joy. And one of the fascinating things about joy is that joy is not waiting for things to get better. That's called happiness. We as Americans are really good at happy. I mean, we can put on a happy face. You can buy happiness for a short while, but you cannot buy joy. Because you see, joy is not affected by the circumstance in which you find yourself. And so I loved some of these quotes when I was just kind of looking up, how do people define joy? Here's one by Henry Nouwen. He says, joy is the experience of knowing that you are unconditionally loved and that nothing, sickness, failure, emotional distress, oppression, war, or even death can take that love away. Here's what uh, Jay Bennett says. Joy is a human condition which God himself has designed for each of us. As we experience joy, we come to understand how it transcends the ups and downs of life on planet Earth and offers peace and assurance in all circumstances. Then finally, this quote from Rebecca Lyons, joy is not the absence of darkness. Joy is confidence that the darkness will lift. Joy is not waiting. Joy is saying, even in the middle of whatever situation I am, I know that I am loved and I know that God is near. And this is how we begin to understand how do we cultivate joy. We cultivate it by cultivating a nearness of God. But Isaiah also shows us something else that is critically important when it comes to joy. And that is trusting. That God not only is here now, but that God will be here in the future. The quote that I've used so often before uh, comes from, uh, of course, Eugene Peterson. Uh, Joy borrows from the future. Joy borrows from the future. And this is exactly what Isaiah is trying to do to the people with whom he is prophesying. He is not saying One day, things will get better. One day, the crocus will blossom. One day, waters will burst forth. One day, there will be pool instead of hot sand. And then, you can be a people of joy. No, no, no. As Walter Brueggemann says, what he is doing is he he is inviting the listener today into anticipatory joy. The fact that God is about to do 
something. Now here's the problem with that. This can easily become just a sense of escapism. This can easily become a sense of, oh, okay, I know what this is. This is about just saying, oh, I wish that things will get better one day. I'm just going to imagine that, and then I don't have to actually think about the world in which I live today. That's, again, that's what entertainment does. Uh, that's what a, a vacation does, and all those things are fine, but those things, by and large, do not bring joy. They do bring happiness, but there is a distinction between that and between living in this image of what God says is going to happen. And it's rather, what happens actually, is the more that you can picture and imagine this future of which I, Isaiah describes full of joy, the more it will begin to change how you live today. So I have a good friend, and over the last few years, uh, he's a pastor, and I've been kind of, uh, kind of just talking to him, and a lot of the conversations have to do with the church that he serves. And the particular church in which he serves, he's struggling because he seems to not be able to get them to care very much. They don't seem to care that much about God, quite honestly, uh, about the church, about the community around them, um, or trying different things. And so, so he's really wrestled over the last few years. How do I get them to begin to care? And so, you know, he, he does different things, different kinds of Bible studies, or different uh, ways of worshiping, or, or perhaps different ways to reach out to the community. And at first, you know, for the first one time, uh, they're excited about it, and then they, then they lose all interest, and then they simply don't care anymore. And so he says, you know, I don't know, what, what should I do? And my, my heart aches for him. And I would love to, A, tell you that this is the only church like this. It's not. I mean, I mean, there are a lot of churches. I've experienced this a little bit, but I've seen certainly my other pastor friends who have experienced this and just trying to get it. And it's really hard to get people to care. It's hard to force people to care. And as I was thinking about that, I was reminded, I wanted to say to you all how much I appreciate that you care. I'm not kidding about that. Sometimes you care a lot. And I get to hear how much you care. But I want you to know that is an absolute gift. Please hear me. I would much rather hear all of your opinions on everything than have you not care at all what happens. Hey, not all your opinions on everything. Sorry, I saw you look at him. No, not yours, but everyone else's. Yeah. Because it is a gift. And so a little while back, I was meeting with them, and he, he's just kind of lost. He's like, you know what, the church is, and it will. It will likely, within a year or two, it will close. And he said, you know, I just, I just want to serve the next church. I just want them to care. But then he said something else. He said, yeah, and I, I want them to be able to dream. And I have to say, I don't think I'd ever actually put those two things necessarily together caring and dreaming and what he meant by this of course let me be clear is he didn't want someone who, who you know a church where they get together and they're like oh wouldn't this be great if this happened and oh it'd be so much better than things are right now and it's a wonderful dream and then they go home and and then they just come back the next week and say okay what dreams are we going to have this week oh this is fun that's escaping no he wants them to be able to dream in such a way, and if you can't dream, here's what happens. You begin to think nothing can change. If you have no image for the fact that, that one day God is going to create this incredible world where there is this peace and there is this joy and there is this hope and there is this love and you're only stuck over here in your stump or you're stuck in the desert in the wilderness and you think, no, the way things are or the way things will always be, then you have no reason 
to care because everything's gonna stay the same. It's simply lethargy that begins to occur. Why? Because why should I put up any effort if nothing is ever going to change? Here's what I want you to hear. When Isaiah gives us this image, he is giving us permission to dream. Now, here's what it does. I want to be super clear because here's where we struggle. Is He says this is what God is going to do. So we begin with this. We are not literally, we do not have the gifts. God, only God has those gifts to be able to create this world. Let us be very clear. We cannot force a crocus up. It's God first and foremost. However, God is always inviting us to be a part of this kingdom, a part of this dream. This is the tapestry that we talk about. This is, as we think about going there, we know where we are a part of this dream, and we get to be a part of that. And you see, that begins to give you energy. That begins to give you hope that wherever you are, you know that there is joy. Why? Because things can actually change, because there is a different way, and we get to be a part of it. And when you forget to dream and you forget to believe that one day Christ will return and that one day all will be at peace, then we just sit over here in lethargy and we do nothing. And there is no joy in that. And when you find oneself or yourself spending so much time doing whatever you can to invest and try to be as happy as possible, but you realize that you are never full of joy, it is likely that you have forgotten the dream of what will be. But at times, it is incredibly difficult for us to believe that things will change. I was thinking about that a lot this week. This fall, I've told some of you, this fall has been, in some ways, a bit of a challenge uh, for me. I haven't always uh, uh, been a person of joy. I've never always been a person of joy, but uh, I, I certainly haven't this fall. And uh, uh, several different times I've kind of noticed this. And there's different reasons. You know, some of it is I have some people who are close to me who are really struggling with some things. And, and so that makes it a challenge. And uh, we've begun to kind of resurrect the building stuff. And that's both exciting, but also we're doing, uh, you know, I'm mostly just kind of redoing everything that we did three years ago. And so that's just kind of depressing to get us to the place where then we can move forward. And then finally, as I've said before, you know, there are people here who've left the church over COVID. And these are people with whom I had relationships with. And that's just sad. And so there are moments, right, when it can be hard to be a person of joy in that. And it can be really easy to just kind of get sucked into that and just think, well, what is is always will be. And we're just kind of rehashing the same thing. And oh. So this week I went back two years to December 13th, 2020. You remember December 13th, 2020? And I looked at the sermon that I preached on Isaiah 35. And I don't think I've ever done this before. I'm going to just kind of reread, not the whole thing, don't get nervous, <laughs> but just some of it. Here's what I said almost exactly two years ago. I've been reflecting with folks about how perhaps this is the most Adventist advent that I can recall. And in fact, this may be the easiest season to ever really understand what we mean by the now, but the not yet of Advent. I say this because in one ear, we hear about the scourge of the coronavirus. As Governor Holcomb said this week, Indiana is on fire. 
people are continuing to suffer from the physical pangs of COVID. Businesses and restaurants and theaters and the tourism industry are hemorrhaging. Are hemorrhaging. Stress and depression have ramped up as people feel isolated and disconnected with others. Plans for holiday gatherings have been thwarted or done in hushed tones so as to avoid being shamed. But then, in the other ear, we hear shouts that vaccines have been approved and that people across the pond are getting shots that are providing some kind of protection. We hear about 40,000 doses that are headed to our state and are so close we can almost feel the prick of the needle. But of course, none of us, at least not yet that I know of, have actually truly received a vaccine. It's still beyond the grasp of us, and though we hear whispers of it, we haven't yet experienced it. So we sit in the reality of masks and social distancing and physical death and economic destruction, and yet we are also leaning into the possibility and hope and joy and peace of what might soon be of a virus that might finally be squashed or at least squelched or at least slowed down. Who of us haven't begun fantasizing about what at least might be a possibility if all goes well? Of friends and family visited, of foreign lands toured, Hugs being given and received, masks being taken off and thrown away. This is quite the image for us of what it means to be living in the now, but the not yet. And I cannot imagine that we have ever felt it quite this poignantly in recent history. It's kind of funny, in some ways I forget what that was like just two years ago, and yet, as soon as I reread that, all of those thoughts began to flood back into my mind. When I preached that on December 13th of 2020, there were not very many people to whom I preached that. The chairs were massively kind of set apart. I couldn't really see you. We had masks on, but it, it couldn't really see you. We had asked you not to sing. Some of you were cheating on that. I heard you. As soon as we got done, we just walked straight out to our cars. There was no talking, no conversations. It was about nine months into this COVID era that we were in, and we could feel the weight of that time. And we did not know how long it would last. Just 11 days later, my wife on Christmas Eve would be diagnosed or be test positive for COVID. So rather than driving to COVID, or to COVID, driving to Colorado, we had already packed all of our bags. We just, we just, we didn't unpack those suitcases. We just lived out of them that week. We could not bring ourselves to unpack. But we didn't go anywhere. And of course, in the months and year, in the year and a half or so later, that would, that would continue, others faced much worse things. But I had almost forgotten about all of that. But then I kept reading the sermon. And towards the end, I mentioned the fact that just that very week, I had spoken to two of our senior saints on the phone both of whom I had not seen 
One of them said to me, you know what? Uh, I'm hopeful that I'm gonna be able to come to the Christmas Eve service that's outside. The other one, an elder lady, said, you know, I'm hopeful that I'm gonna be able to come in a, in a couple of months. I, that's my plan is to be able to, to come to worship in a couple of months. And when I talked to them on the phone, I mean, my I heart was filled. And, and this was then how I continued the rest of this sermon. I said, in my anticipation, my waiting expectantly for the days when I can see this brother and sister in Christ who have been sequestered at home finally walk through these doors and I can shake their hands or give them a hug without fear that I will give them something that will harm them and we can eat donuts together and the kids can run around in the gathering space and get in people's ways and leave crumbs and powder trails and I can hear the voices of people singing praises to God and this sanctuary is filling up with people and the men and women are here on great banquet weekends and looking at your faces when you come down to take communion and making fun of you for being late. Folks loitering in the sanctuary in the parking lot, not quickly leaving, walking down the education wing, the squeals of kids running down the hallway in reckless abandon and not caring how close they get to people. It simply fills my heart with a joy that I cannot contain. And yes, I said, I know it's not going to happen next month. And yes, I hear things about new normal and permanent changes happening because of this season. And perhaps I am an ostrich with my head in the sand, but I want us, all of us, to visualize that yet again and to know that it will happen. It may not happen as quickly as I would like or as any of us would like, but in some form or fashion, at some point, I said, it will happen. And as I described that two years ago, and I described it with as much joy as I possibly could, and I'll be honest with you, it felt at times like the words were coming out of my lips and falling straight to the ground as I looked out and people were in mass. And, but all that said, with just a simple description, and I remember kind of just saying this, just look at it. One day, it will happen. We will be back. The joy that began to experience, and I talked to at least one person after that who said, that was so joyful. I was so excited and I loved being able to think about that. And here is what I want us to stop and do today. I want us to stop and remember what it was like two years ago. And then I want you to see what it's like now. Because today there are people filling up the sanctuary. Today the kids are leading us in song. Today the older people are coming in and I love giving them an embrace. Today people are stopping and talking in the gathering space for 20 and 30 minutes. Minutes. Today, kids are running around and getting in our way and being loud. Today, we are eating donuts. And we need to remember that. Because it gives us then the confidence to say, no matter what you might be facing right now, Joy will be in the future, that things will continue to change, that God will continue to be with us. I do not know what other travails, what other challenges will come our way, and they will come. But what I want you to know, what we must remember, is that joy is not precipitated upon our circumstance. It is precipitated upon a God who is always at 
work. And when we can begin to live into that vision and that dream, we will not just be a people of joy in the future, we will be a people who can have joy in this very moment. For God's glory and for God's joyful glory alone. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we give you praise. We confess that we sometimes forget. We forget how you have been with us in difficult times. And because of that, God, we lose hope. We lose joy and we lose peace. And yet, Lord, if we create the time and the space to go back, we can remember how you have been with us even in the darkest of times. How your spirit has been with us. How you have said, I am here and will continue to be here. And so I pray, God, that you would help us to be a people of joy. Not because of who we are, but because of who you are. Because of the gift it is to be with Emmanuel, God, with us. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen.